This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the very charming Simon Belanger, which is an interesting adjective to use for him if you were just listening to the call before we started recording. But that's, that's for us to, us to know and for you to guess. Simone, we have some great topics today. I'm going to talk about five investing myths. You're going to talk about the over, overnight rate from the BOC. And then we're going to talk about CDRs, which we get questions about quite a bit. And then I will round us out with what to expect long-term from the stock market. So make sure you turn tune into that long-term. I'm going to provide data as per usual. But you were up first, sir. What do we got? Yes, I wanted to talk about the overnight rate because obviously when the Bank of Canada raises rates like they did a couple weeks ago, uh, it's always the overnight rate. But I think a lot of people don't realize what the implications are for that what it means. So the rate sets the cost for Canada's banks to borrow money from each other at the end of each business day. That's because the banks are constantly exchanging money with one another. And sometimes they need to borrow money on a short term basis based on the flow of money within their bank. So for example, let's say I buy you know, some brakes, I need to change my brake pads for my mountain bike with my visa card. And my visa card is issued by TD. The shop I go to banks with Scotiabank. So once I use my credit card to pay, the process is incomplete. At the end of the day, TD has to settle the transaction with Scotiabank along with thousands of other transactions between the two banks. So if TD has lent more money than money has come in, they can get additional funds by borrowing from other Canadians' banks by using the overnight rate lending. Now, Canadian banks are can also borrow or deposit money with the Bank of Canada. So the deposit rate is the overnight rate, which is currently at 4.75%, but banks can also borrow money from the Bank of Canada on a one-day loan, which is called the bank rate. The bank rate is currently sitting at 5%. So these this leads us to the next question. How does the Bank of Canada make or lose money? Well, to simplify it, the Bank of Canada has assets and liabilities, its assets are Canadian government bonds and its liabilities are deposits by the banks because the banks are depositing money there. So the Bank of Canada owes them that money with the interest. Currently, the Bank of Canada is losing money. That's because it did a lot of quantitative easing, also called QE, during the pandemic. And QE is just a fancy word to say that the Bank of Canada bought Canadian government bonds. It doesn't have to be Canadian government bonds, but that's typically what it is. Uh, we've seen, for example, the Bank of Japan buying things, I think, like even equities from the market. But it's essentially the central bank buying assets from the market. And by doing so, they expanded their balance sheets with bonds that were yielding just a few percentage points because they were issued when interest rates were low. So expanding their balance sheet actually means that, you know, lack of better word, they are printing money because they're buying those bonds and in exchange are providing money to 
you know, the Canadian government or whomever they're buying the bonds from. That's because, you know, they have to buy the bonds with something. It's that simple. And now with rates being much higher, the interest rate the Bank of Canada is collecting on those bonds is lower than the interest rates it's paying on those deposits that I mentioned earlier since the rates are much higher right now. And because of that, that's why it's currently losing pretty significant amount of money where traditionally it's been the inverse because tr interest rates were steadily going down and the Bank of Canada was actually having a profit every year. There are a couple words that get tossed around a lot. <laughs> QE, expanding the Fed balance sheet. And you're right, like these are complex words with very simple explanations. But in aggregate, this confuses a lot of people, and rightfully so. And uh, no, this is this is a good overview for, uh, frankly, a, a pretty important topic to understand uh, for for basic, you know, how the economic engine works for central banks here in Canada with the U.S. Mm -hmm. and the Japan example yeah. as well. It's basically the plumbing, right? <laughs> That's just the plumbing of our financial system. Um, and it's just, you know, just important to understand. And people may think, okay, what happens if the Bank of Canada constantly has losses? Well, at the end of the day, you know, ultimately it doesn't really matter because it's going to be backed by the government of Canada. Um, and if they do make profits, I know in the U.S. they return that to the Treasury when they do. Uh, they have profits with the Fed. I'm not 100% sure what they do in Canada, but I suspect they return that to the uh, government of Canada. You can't hear this kind of information and think, hmm, how does this go on forever? <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, the, the more you learn and the more you understand said plumbing I, i'm not i'm uh, you know the eternal long-term optimist but the more you learn about said plumbing you wonder about the quality <laughs> of who installed yeah. the plumbing quality you're of the like, pipes like, yeah, yeah. they're not getting rusted yeah, yeah, yeah. the pipes yeah you're like you're like so these pipes need to get replaced and the shoddy contractor that i hired to do the plumbing like who is this guy? Is this the right guy? Is this the right girl for the job? Um, those are the questions that I often leave with. Yeah, no, I mean, and it's that was just a quick overview, right? But a lot of people just don't really, they hear those words and it's easy to, you know, just kind of brush it off. And, you know, I've listened to really experts on the subject. And it's funny because sometimes even the expert kind of disagree whether it qualifies as money printing or not. And I don't want to get into that debate. But at the end of the day, I think where the disagreement kind of enters, it's just whether that money stays on other banks' balance sheets, for example, instead of being kind of distributed in the economy, and whether the, you know, expansion of the balance sheet, like I mentioned, whether that directly results in inflation or it has to be tied to fiscal spending, which is just a fancy word to say, you know, government spending money and, you know, whether it's through programs, whether it's direct money to uh, the citizens, whatever it is, but the combination of the two that has been shown to be very inflationary, whether expanding the balance sheet alone is or isn't, there's more debate around that. I'm going to move to a topic yeah. I am calling <laughs> five investing. <laughs> like moving on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> five investing myths and the this has come from five things that were written down in a tweet 
by margin of safety capital or margin of safety investing on Twitter. His name is actually also Simon, not not Simon. Simon. No, but he he, uh, puts out good (laughs) content. I saw that tweet too. It was, uh, it's hard to disagree with. Yeah. 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 And you know what? Like a lot of people write really great stuff on uh, content on Twitter, but he also uses stratosphere and like openly promotes it on, on the online. So we, we like him. We like him a lot, and uh, he does write good content. So go follow him at MOS underscore investing. So he writes, so much nonsense investing wisdom is out there, quote unquote wisdom. And he wrote five things that basically are just like kind of said to be, said to be true, but when you look under the hood, they're not always good. And so that's why I'm calling them five investing myths. So he says one. So he's saying these are not obviously true. Buybacks are automatically good for investors. And this is a very true, right? Where it's like people say, you know, they're buying back stock as like an automatically bullish sign. When frankly, it depends. And he says here, it depends on both the absolute value of the buyback, which is based on the future of the business and relative return of other capital allocation decisions. Exactly, right? Like there are a decision tree of metrics that the management team, the CEO, the CFO, and the management team can make to grow the business, reward shareholders via buying back some stock, pay a dividend, do M&A. There's all these things that they can do. And they have to weigh the pros and cons. If you're like Apple and you're just gushing cash and you like possibly can't deploy it fast enough, then yes, you're going to bring it back to shareholders. You're going to pay a growing dividend and you're going to buy back an absurd amount of stock. But that's because they're pretty limited. That doesn't mean all companies should be doing this. What do you think? Yeah, no, I totally agree. And even if you forget about the other forms of capital investment that you can do that you mentioned, if you even if you just think about buybacks and dividends, um, and we've talked about that before, I mean, buybacks can be better. Dividends can be better. It really depends on the situation. There's a lot of variables in, involved. I mean, one of the advantages in the dividend is, you know, it's returned over to you. Buybacks, you're relying on management to assess that, yeah, like Simon mentioned, that the val- the future value of the, like the business is currently being undervalued compared to its future value. That's essentially what you're, you're saying. Whereas at least a dividend, there's less, um, you know, there's, you have to make sure that the company's sustainable and all that stuff. And, you know, that's, I don't want to go into that, but at least with a dividend, as long as it's sustainable and the company is reinvesting enough to make sure that the dividend is growing in the future, I mean, there's less, I feel like, uh, discretion on management. That's probably the way I would put it. I mean, you know, you get it. And whether the company, you know, kind of continues to grow or not, it's less relevant in terms of, you know, you seeing the impact from that decision. Right. Like if, if you think the business is undervalued and you see and you're actively buying shares and the management team agrees and they're saying hey look we're going to keep buying stock if the market buying back stock if the market you know trading at uh, is treating us at this multiple then yes they're probably good right but i what i would categorize these five things that simon wrote as things that are just automatically dismissed as good 
when it depends. They can be good. They can be bad. And to automatically say the rule of thumb as these are all good is very elementary thinking. And I think that uh, good to bring up because many new investors will automatically think that these are good things no matter what, like the company's buying back stock. Yeah. It's like, mm-hmm. that, that could be good, but did they also buy back stock at the peak and have a to- horrible track record of buying back their stock when they think it's undervalued? It was actually not, right? Like, yeah. So. No, exactly. <laughs> I mean, I think, too, like investing in general, there are things that are black and white, but most things are not. Most things are gray. That's right. Number two. Now, this one's extremely gray because, I mean, well, I'll just read it <laughs> and then we can make our decision. High revenue growth. Myth number two. High revenue growth is always good. It says growth that actually produces earnings and cash flow, so profits, without costing more than the growth is good. Otherwise, high revenue growth can be bad. Now, this is interesting, right? Because typically, of course, you always want the top line of the business to be growing. But what he's saying here is if you are acquiring a customer for 100 and the customer lifetime value is 10 bucks, then you just did value destruction at the, you did growth at the cost of value destruction. And I think that we've seen a lot of companies do that because the, the market rewarded growth at all costs. And now we've seen that swing back the other way and say, guys, we, we can't spend a hundred dollars to earn 10, right? Like that, that does not work forever. And, uh, eventually the tide goes the other way, but typically, yeah, I mean, Revenue growth is good. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's always like you said, it's more nuanced, and it gives me PTSD from 2020 and 2021, where it was all about top line growth. Light speed comes to yeah, mind. Yeah, light speed comes to mind. I mean, not all of it, but a lot of the Nasdaq probably <laughs> would not a lot, but a decent chunk of the Nasdaq would probably fall in that bucket too, where it was growth at all costs. Um, you know, we're losing more money, doesn't matter. We'll be profitable at some point in the future. No path to profitability. Um, man, a lot of managed because they're investors. That that's that what they wanted them from yeah. seat. They rode them from seed stage to IPO. That cohort of investors is growth at any cost, and the dream of operating leverage will come come true eventually. And the dream of operating leverage was not what it came out to be for many of these high growth tech companies. When the the you know there it, it wasn't fixed costs staying the same for increased revenue growth. That was a dream that was sold by, you know, the, the, the beautiful business model of software as a service. Uh, Many of that didn't come true. Some of it did, but not. Yeah. And that's where you see macro having a very big impact on certain types of companies because the money was, you know, it was not hard to get financing. It was, you know, like people were lining up. Why? Because they could, they couldn't get anything on bonds, on anything that was safe. So people got out on the risk spectrum, uh, had tons of money to invest. Obviously, VCs were part of that too. Um, some have had some pretty tough, uh, probably 
what 2022 was a wake-up call definitely for some VCs that uh, things has changed and making sure that the the companies that they backed were actually thriving to be profitable and not still living in the 2020-2021 environment. Yeah, the low interest phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> uh, number three, myth number three, dividends are always great. Say it for the Say it for the people in the back. Canadians love their dividends and they think that they're always great no matter what. Here, I mean, if you listen to this podcast, you'd know that that's absolutely not true. But let me make it very clear for you. Okay, so uh, Simon says, dividends are one way to get a return, but they aren't free, thank you, and taxed. They're double taxed, basically. And as an investor, you need to reinvest at good rates of return, Whereas if the business has reinvestment opportunities with higher returns than a dividend, it's a costly choice. I agree. Now, dividends are a costly luxury for a company that has the ability to reinvest at a higher rate than you ever could. And if you think about this very logically, Simone, it's not that dividends are bad. Let's go back to the Apple example. They have so much cash, they, they, they can't deploy it fast enough at a high rate of return, so they take some of it by back stock and pay a growing dividend. Wonderful. However, for many businesses that are not at the, the mature stage of $3 trillion in market cap, and for businesses that have a lot of growth opportunities that are not in their late stages of maturity, you want to own businesses that can take a dollar of capital and turn it into more by reinvesting it into the business. This is the whole concept of return on invested capital. This is the whole concept of investing. And if the business you're investing in doesn't have that opportunity, then their hurdle, the hurdle rate at the business is very low by definition, or it could be lower by definition. And so the concept that dividends are always great and that they're free is a myth. They are taking the cash off their balance sheet and putting it into yours. The business is now less worth less. The enterprise value of the business is now lower because they've taken the cash from their balance sheet to your balance sheet and got taxed along the way. <laughs> so say it for the people in the back. You know, dividends are not always great. No, exactly. And I think, look, I love dividends as much as anyone else, but... You really, that's why the companies that do dividends the best are the ones that can pay a dividend, have a low payout ratio. They can pay a sustainable dividend, ideally grow it over time, but still reinvest money in the business to make sure that it grows. And that's really where I like to look in terms of dividend plays is I want to make sure there's still growth. And one of the biggest downsides from dividends, and you see this time after time and i i'm gonna go and say a mini poll bold prediction for the next year that you'll see it even more where companies are stuck with their dividend and what i'm saying they turn into zombies exactly what i'm saying here is the company is management is so afraid of cutting that dividend because the stock price will take a hit when it is clearly the right decision for the business but they've been paying it for you know 
5, 10, 15, whatever the amount of years, and they are making terrible management decisions because of that fear of cutting the dividend. And Exhibit A is clearly, you know, the one that comes to mind is Intel. You know, it's um, clearly they debated that. They probably should have cut the dividend. I mean, they should have completely stopped paying it, to be honest. Um, I still I think they still pay a small dividend, but they should have cut it like a year and a half, two years ago. Intel has become the the dunk on stock of this podcast. Oh, no, but my God. It's, <laughs> Dude, how many episodes yeah, in a row do right. we just like roast Intel? Uh, I think it, it's it, become the official yeah, dunk on stock. But I think stock. it's the best example for that, right? You have a company in a space that's hyper competitive that was dead set on keeping its dividend and because of that now they're way behind all their competitors and for whatever reason they still want to pay that dividend i mean it basically just guarantees that i mean not guarantees but the probability that intel is still alive in 10 years from now i think i would not bet that that they will be um they might still be but they won't they'll be a shell of themselves would be my prediction Number four, disruptive technologies are always great investments. Uh, <laughs> we're looking at you. We're looking at you, Kathy. Uh, much better off looking for things that won't change compared to things that will change in an established over an established market. Now, I will have to push back on Simon on this because this is two different styles. Of investing, and I think both are valid. Uh, one is just trying to always be on the right side of disruptive technologies. Typically, the reward for your speculation is much higher than buying CN Rail and CP Rail, which are you know duopolies that the future probably looks more of the same than different. So I would say that these are much different styles of investing capital creation or wealth creation versus uh, wealth preservation. That being said, I tend to agree that there are a lot of growing businesses that the future looks more of the same and better for them without you know, a disruptive market. If you're coming in straight on the top of a speculative disruptive market, you have very little insight into what 10 years looks like from here. Very little insight. And so maybe you're rewarded for that, uh, taking on that ad- additional risk. But you have to be in and out of stuff more often. You have to look more like a trader than a, you know, buy and sit on your hands and do nothing investor. And so I, I don't think there's anything wrong with that style, but they're very different. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's a higher risk reward, right? So your your outcomes are much more wider ranging if you're going to invest in something that will be a disrupted technology. Um, you know, it could, you know, it could be a multi-bagger, like it could go to zero um, if you're really talking about disrupted technologies. Whereas if you're talking about what Simon's saying in terms of looking at businesses that have been there, done that, still have a bright future, then you have a much narrower set of outcomes and those outcomes will kind of skew towards um, definitely, you know, still having money and um, having some decent returns. They obviously, the floor will be higher and the ceiling will be lower. 
that's probably the best way uh, to explain it. If you're in sports, it's just, you know, it's those boom and bust prospects, right? Those are the disrupted technologies, whereas you have prospects that are not as sexy, for example, like like uh, Sidney Crosby, right? Sidney Crosby was never going to be the most talented hockey player you've ever seen. I mean, you can look at other hockey players that you would see pure skills. You're like, oh my God, this guy is amazing. But the whole package and the ceiling, I remember when he was drafted, it was basically, well, this guy will at least be this and he could actually be higher. But, you know, it's just there's less of a, a range, whereas, you know, certain prospect, they just are boomer bust, right? They could be in the, the KHL in a few years or from now, like they could be the next superstar. Yeah, s- super wide range of outcomes. By the way, Sidney Crosby is such a tank. That guy's quads. Oh, yeah. Like people don't give him a credit for like how much he reinvented himself as a hockey player to be so... uh you know, to, to have so much duration in the league because he is a literal like tank. Like his, his quads are the size of my toys. Yeah, and I think what he's elite at is his work ethic. I think that I've heard someone say that. I'm like, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Cause you can't stay that good for that long if you're not obviously he's very talented, but if you look at a player like Connor McDavid, like Connor McDavid wows you. Sidney Crosby yeah, he does. doesn't necessarily he wow you, but he does a lot of things really well. Yeah. I mean, he he, do, he does wow, but anyways, yeah, we're I going know. on to... Um, <laughs> no, no, uh, this is a, another tangential related thing. Uh, work ethic. Have you seen the new Arnold Schwarzenegger documentary on Netflix? No, I haven't. It's a three-part series. Me and my girlfriend just started it last night. We just finished the first episode or almost finished it. And uh, talk about work ethic. An absolute machine. Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> the, the one, the only. Yeah. Arnold. Uh, it's on Netflix. Listen, go watch it. I'll, I'll, I'll finish it and maybe we can, we can talk about it on the pod because there, there might be more interesting takeaways than you think. All right, number five. The myth is, this is the last one. Value is a low multiple of trailing earnings. Historical financials can be very informative if the business is likely to look the same going forward. But for many, it's not going to happen. The future is the only thing that matters to your future returns. And I wholeheartedly agree. I have this issue. Many investors do. It's very difficult to to tell the future. In fact, it's almost impossible, but you can have some predictions Looking backwards, everyone has that information, right? Everyone's dealing with the facts that have happened in the past. And sometimes you can over-index on it. And this can be a mistake. For instance, if you look no further than the 80s, the top 20 companies by market cap globally, none of them are top 20 today. And so the future often looks very different uh, than what it looks like today, especially with the ruthlessness of of capitalism and and business. So don't over index on past performance or past valuation multiples. Like a business that's trading at five times earnings, but earnings are going to be half of what they are next year. That's an expensive stock. Yeah. Right. Like, and that's a hard concept 
for people to wrap their head around at first. Look, last year, Simon, the business did $10 in earnings per share and the stock trades at 50 bucks. So that's a five times PE. But next year, it's only going to do two and a half dollars in earnings and maybe less the year after that. A five PE stock might be the most expensive stock on the market. And that concept is very hard to wrap your head around at first. Yeah. And then when you start looking at Ford PE, obviously a lot of it will be estimates or based on guidance uh, from the company itself. So obviously there's a margin of error there. But um, yeah, I think that's one of the mistakes I've made when I started my investing journeys for sure. And one of the most common mistakes I see people make is they get hypnotized by that low PE. And we get requests from people, even like people on Twitter will kind of mention banks and what the, the PE is like for Canadian banks. And I just mentioned, look, there's some real headwinds, like maybe they won't be as affected as I might think, but you know, this year, next year, it probably will look very different than the trailing 12 months. And you have to keep that in mind because then it throws all that valuation work you might have done based on the past out the window. It doesn't, it just doesn't apply anymore. Yes. And this is the challenge, right? Because how do you guess the future? It's just basically a set of predictions and using analyst estimates, if you if you go that route, which have their flaws and their errors as well, of course, because the people making the estimates are just humans too, right? And and they don't have, they cannot know everything about the future. No one can, and so this this makes the art of valuation challenging and more art than science in many ways. But it's really important to not index on low trailing multiples because a 5 or a 10 PE stock, sure, it might give you some margin of safety in the short term, but it does not make that stock cheap or inexpensive or undervalued whatsoever. It's just one data point. Yeah, exactly. And... You know, like, um, especially for cyclical industries, and there's a lot of them, right? Even when you think about banking, banking can be cyclical too. But a lot of cyclical industries, oftentimes the best time to buy a business will be when those trailing 12 months metrics are high because that's when the business is actually starting to turn around. So yes, the last 12 months is not looking great, but they're actually starting to turn around. And this is when you actually should start investing in the business if you like that business. It's counterintuitive. Cyclicals are cheap when they have a high PE. Yeah. Yeah, that's it. Typically, mm-hmm. as a rule, I, I, think, I think as a rule, you know, cyclicals are at their cheapest when the PE is the highest. And it makes completely sense because they're cyclical. (laughs) And there's two numbers in the PE ratio. It's not just price. exactly. It's divided by earnings. And 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 the PE will usually be at the highest when the, you know, it's (laughs) it's the earnings are at the lowest, right? So, yeah. At the lowest, Mm -hmm. exactly. It's (laughs) It's the denominator. 
All right, let's move on to the Neo Exchange yeah. segment here. <laughs> this one came, I texted you, it came a little bit as a surprise. So, uh, I guess it's SIBO or CBOE. I've seen some commercials, so I guess they call it SIBO Can- Canada, uh, but it's a global exchange firm. So, um, had Breezer on Twitter reach out to us a few weeks ago asking if we could talk about Neo Exchange. Obviously, we've done it a couple times in the past, but I think last time, what was it, like probably at least a year ago at this point? I met. I don't know how much I can disclose. Like, I don't know if we're, I'm not under an NDA with him or anything, but uh, I've been talking and getting to know more uh, a guy that CBOE bought his company for like in the hundreds of millions of dollars. And uh, yeah, anyway, so I'm I'm noticing now there's a lot of connections to this company. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So anyways, that was interesting because essentially CBOE Canada, when I started researching it for the Neo Exchange, I hadn't realized that CBOE uh, Global Markets in 2022 in June, they actually bought Neo Exchange. So CBOE stands for the Chicago Board Option Exchange. They operate several exchanges, including BATS Global Markets. Uh, you might see it when you look up certain stocks, you'll see BATS. Um, they're listed in the US under ticker CBOE and have a market cap of $15 billion. Now, CBOE Canada, or CBO, I don't know, I'll probably use those interchangeably, um, they offer different type of services. I will focus today on the Canadian Depository Receipt, CDR, but I'll definitely revisit them in the future because as I was looking on their platform, they have some very interesting uh, traded offerings, which really piqued my interest and I think will be an interesting segment. And Brayden, I actually think you'll like this because they also have a kind of private uh, platform as well for I think more early stage companies that are still private to get financing it's just at a glance I could be completely off but that's what it sounded for me Um, so yeah go ahead is that a is that a offering from CBOE CBOE Canada yeah Mm mm-hmm Okay. So anyways, it'll be interesting to go back because it is investing related, uh, but it would have been too long of a segment. Now, to get back to CDRs, they are listed on CBO Canada, although you might see it from your broker still showing under Neo Exchange, uh, but it's still, you know, it's been uh, fully acquired. And the shares are held in custody with CIBC Mellon. For those of you not familiar, CIBC Mellon is a joint venture between CIBC, everyone's familiar with them and the Bank of New York Mellon, which is a GSIB bank in the US. Um, they, I think primarily uh, the Bank of New York Mellon, they're primarily kind of custodian services. And there are, to get back to CDRs, there are advantages and disadvantages. So I'll just go back and I'll give some perspective over here. So advantages, if you're investing with smaller amounts, you can get access to companies listed outside of Canada for a fraction of the cost. For example, a CDR of Google or Alphabet costs approximately $21 Canadian versus $120 USD if you buy an actual share. And I know some online brokers offer fractional shares, but what I've seen is very limited in terms of number of stocks that you can do that with. And it's not available on all brokers. So definitely an interesting option if you want to build a portfolio of individual companies, but don't necessarily have, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Maybe you're just starting out. It's a a very viable option. And then the second advantage 
which can be a disadvantage as well, is currency hedging. This means that you're less affected by currency fluctuation, which can impact your returns. Um, anything to add to that? Nope, that's good. Yeah, and that's what they list on their website. But I just, you know, as always, I want to give a balanced take. Now, disadvantages, there are extra fees. And uh, I'm glad that CBOE is mentioning it on their website. So CIBC earns revenue by providing currency hedging on CDRs. They mentioned that it's around 0.50% per year. So half a percent in terms of the average. Now, currency hedging... Um, it's, it can be a good or bad thing, but historically it's not worked out that well. And they put that as a plus and sure it might help volatility, but in terms of total returns is actually not really true, at least historically. So they sell it as a good thing, but I'm more kind of skeptical on that. So if you look and you do, um, you know, uh, past 10 or 5 years and you compare vfv.to and vsp.to vsp is actually the hedge version of the Vanguard S&P 500 index fund and vfv is the unhedged version so over 10 years uh, you've seen that the returns are very different so the unhedged version has provided 274% in total returns where the hedge version has provided 167% in total returns so that's a compound annual growth rate difference of like almost 400 basis point which is really massive um, and then if you look back at 5 years because I was looking at the 10 years and I was well aware that the Canadian dollar has kind of trended down over the last 10 years so I figured that yeah you know the unhedged version would have quite an edge here but over the last five years it's been more up and down and even then over the last five years the unhedged version returned 67% versus 53% so you all you see even in the you know, in an environment where the Canadian dollar fluctuated a lot more versus the US dollar the unhedged version is still pretty far ahead in front of the hedge version. Um, any comments on that before I wrap up here? No, I I get this question all the time. Uh, you and I get this question all the time. Should I do the, the, the CAD currency hedged ETF versus the non? And I always say, don't, no. <laughs> One, usually you pay a higher fee. Not all the time, but sometimes you'll pay a higher management fee. And two, you are betting on U.S. companies in USD. If in this in this scenario, why why hedge it? You're already earning your income in CAD. Your house is in CAD. Your bank accounts in CAD. Why hedge to CAD? I want to de-hedge to off CAD. Um, and so, so th that might come in the form of owning this in US dollars, which is a different listing entirely. Um, and that, that's my, my quick thought here. I'm just doing the math on the difference between <laughs> that performance on, on 10,000. It's going to be um, pretty massive for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So $10,000 invested versus in the, the hedged version, you end up with... Oh, what over ten years? I did the math wrong. Yeah, over ten years. It's a difference of twenty four thousand dollars, right? Um, 
We're doing yeah. public math, which is always which is always due I mean, for destruction. Could probably, yeah, I think that probably makes sense. I mean, it's still going to be massive, right? Because it compounds. no, it's 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 not. No, okay, you did the math wrong. On ten thousand dollars, it's the difference of one thousand seventy dollars over that time. Okay, yeah, which is ten percent of your investment. So you have. I'm pretty sure I'm doing this. Yeah, right. I'm like, is that even right? I think it should be straightforward, right? Just put 10, 10 times two hundred seventy four percent and ten time or ten grand times one hundred sixty seven percent. And what's the difference? Yeah. So I did that. And um, the, the public math is uh, always. Uh, I, I think I did it right. Okay. Oh, it's over a thousand dollars. I okay. don't. It's dude. pretty big. It's a big difference. Let's just leave it at that before. Uh, you know. I have had a long it's day okay. doing public math out here. That was a bad. My mom choice. is um, is she's retired, but she's an accountant, and I would always laugh at her because mental math was never a good thing. She would always have her calculator. So, um, you know, it's all good. And on the spot, yeah, you always get like, you want to do it quickly. And yeah, so it's it's all good. Mental math is, is really challenging. And I, I get that because I get roasted. Like, aren't you an engineer? Like, di- like, didn't you like do math for a degree? And I'm like, yeah, but what's seven times nine? Like, couldn't tell you. Where's my calculator? <laughs> Uh. <laughs> um, well, okay, so to get back at, uh, you know, non-math stuff, uh, we'll go over, uh, I just wanted to go over final thoughts here. Um, so CDR is, I mean, I'll give it to SIBO uh, or CBOE and NEO Exchange. I mean, they started with five in July of 2021, and now they have 41 offerings. Um, there are some in communication services, pretty much almost, I think, almost every sector, uh, financial industrials, consumer discretionary, healthcare, energy, consumer stables, information technology. Obviously, a lot of them, that's where they started. But yeah, you can really get some pretty interesting names without having to you know, have a lot of money to invest. And I think that's great, especially for people that are just starting and may just have a couple hundred dollars a month. That's a that's a pretty good option for people, um, assuming that they have pretty low buy fees uh, with whichever broker they're using. But for me, and I know for you, you're in the same boat as that. I mean, I would always go for the US one. Um, I think for me, the only way I'd go for the CDR is if I just had very small sums of money. If you have enough to have a diversified f- portfolio, buy the US company directly, you're saving on the fees and you can always do Norbert's Gambit to you know, convert Canadian to USD and uh, have even lower fees there. And, you know, the other option is... You can always go with an ETF route as well. So that's always an, an option. Obviously, if you're looking to pick individual companies, it's different. But that's the way I kind of see it as a whole. I think it's pretty innovative product. I think it's a good thing that it's in the Canadian market and something that's available for people. But just keep in mind, it's not all positive. There are some pros and cons, some drawbacks and some positives. We are already overweight Canadian stocks. The stats are out. We are Canadians are home biased and overweight Canadian stocks. We love owning these no growth, high dividend yield TSX names. Uh, if you look at you know what Canadians are holding in their brokerage accounts, 
don't be over-indexed Canada. And, and, and that's not to say that I don't want to bet on Canada. I think Canada is actually a pretty good place to bet on, um, given the population growth, uh, given like structurally where we are, resources, all those things. I, I am very bullish on Canada. But don't be over-indexed Canada more than you already have to be, right? Like that's... I think that that's uh, a silly capital allocation decision if you're looking at like ge- geographical diversification. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, yeah. that's that's our yeah take exactly. Personally. I like to hedge my portfolio, but not in favor is something that I already have a lot of exposure to. I think that's the best way to put it. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, Simone, should we do this last topic? How are we doing for time? Uh, already 45 minutes, so maybe we keep it uh, for next time. And we can also look at the same time if TD has their uh, has released their what Canadian owns in their brokerage. I think people like to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, I forget what they call it, the, the direct investing index or yeah. something. Uh, they're getting lots of free ads from us. Wow, from that that piece of content that they put out. Good for them. The this topic that I was going to discuss, I think I have put it on the dock, taken it off the dock for next time. <laughs> put it on the dock now four times, so it's going to be now the fifth time, and maybe we'll do it first next episode so that it eventually gets uh, gets discussed. But uh, thank you so much for listening to the podcast, folks. We really appreciate it. You can follow us on the Twitter machine at Bredo Capital for myself and at fiat underscore iceberg for Simone. If you want to follow the podcast, the show, the network on Twitter, that is at CDN underscore investing. That is at CDN underscore investing. If you want to support the show, you can go to the Patreon page at jointci.com. We post our monthly portfolio updates and so um, videos, you get this no on, ads. You get this on video, yeah, exactly. And on video, no ads. Uploaded a bit before the episodes come out too, so you get uh, you get to hear and see our beautiful va- faces. Uh, maybe I think on on That's average right. about a day before it it comes out on the the podcast machines, whatever they are. Are you able to see if people like a lot of people are watching them on Patreon? Uh, yeah, I think um, for the most part, I mean, our subscribers seem to enjoy it. Um, I think we've gained a lot of subscribers, so people clearly want the video. Yeah, I think it's part of it. So it's just an extra perk, right, for for people. So, um, yeah, they get to see our portfolio. And then when we don't mess up too badly and we show our share screen because we're still struggling, I think, with selecting the right button. But uh, it'll get better. It'll get better. And then you can see when we actually have graphs and things like that. We don't have to, you know, explain it so you can visualize it. I just noticed on the Patreon page, sometimes I'm on the left, you're on the right, and sometimes it swaps, and I have no idea <laughs> why. <laughs> have you noticed that? No, I didn't notice. Like every, po- every post, we swap oh, places. Oh, yes, the videos, I've noticed that. Yeah, I have no idea. I have no idea. Like what decides that? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Does the platform just flip a coin? All right, yeah. You know, on the same recordings too, like same day recordings. Yeah, I don't like know. We just swap. If anyone knows Riverside, oh, let let us know. What gives? Thanks for listening. We'll see you in a few days. Take care. Bye bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. 
Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.